So yesterday marked Henry Kissinger's 100th birthday. I trust you all were celebrating, right? Now, if you're unfamiliar with that name, Henry Kissinger, or maybe it rings a bell, but you can't put all the pieces together, uh, he was actually born in Germany to a Jewish family that fled the Nazis when he was only 15. And he would later join the war effort for the United States, fighting the Nazis back there in his home country of Germany, where he would go on to earn a bronze star for his valor. He went on to study and then later teach at Harvard University. He served under President Nixon as national security advisor, then under Gerald Ford. He won the Nobel Peace Prize in 1973 for the effort to bring peace uh, and an end to the, to the war in Vietnam. Many actually point to his diplomacy as one of those turning points in, toward the end of the Cold War. He has arguably been the most influential player in world and foreign policy, really American foreign policy at least, for about 50 years. And even at 100, he's rumored to pull 12-hour days. So he's an impressive guy, which means when he speaks, the world listens. And on his 100th birthday yesterday, he offered a warning to the world. And his warning surrounded the lack of leadership. A lack of leadership. He pointed, for example, to America's fading leadership on the world stage that's emboldened tyrants like Putin and autocrats like Xi Jinping. He points to the lack of leadership in many of our major institutions. So he talks about educational institutions in the West, and he argues that no longer do they possess the kind of rigor and the, the kind of discipline and the kind of culture of deep literacy that created the great leaders of the past. He points to a lack of leadership in politics that's contributed to the kind of partisan divide that we face. He says we've become a nation of feelers, not thinkers. We see, see ourselves increasingly as victims and not those uh, who solve problems. We see the self as primary and, and the needs of the community as secondary. And all of this, he argues, contributes toward this leadership vacuum. And our world, he argues, is the worst for it. Now, regardless of whether or not you buy all of Kissinger's rather ominous assessment of things, I think we can agree there's no doubt that leadership is critical to any institution, whether or not it's political or educational or commercial or even ecclesiastical, as in even in the church. The issue of leadership is once again within Southern Baptist churches, front and center. And it's going to be there at our annual convention in about two weeks, where one of the central questions is going to be, who is qualified to lead God's church? And depending on how that question is answered may determine whether or not the, the growing bleed continues out of the SBC, whether or not maybe it's curbed, or whether or not it just becomes a full-blown hemorrhage. So friends, what are the marks of successful leaders, faithful leaders? How do we spot them, not principally in politics or in business, but actually in the church? Well, that's what we're going to be thinking about as we return this morning to our study in the New Testament book of Titus. Let me, I invite you to turn with me to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1. We're just going to be in verses 5 through 9 this morning. And if you don't happen to have a Bible with you, we provide red Bibles in the seat back before you. And you can find our passage on page 998. 
page 998. Now, in the opening verses, as we saw two weeks ago, this letter is one of the Apostle Paul to his young protege Titus, and Paul's purpose in writing in those opening verses is to see that the, the gospel is both prized and passed down to future generations. So from Paul to his true child Titus to the Cretan churches, and that, he's going to argue, requires leaders. So what, again, should we look for in a leader? What should you, if you desire to be one, what should you aspire to be as a leader? How should we as a congregation be praying for our leaders? Well, look down with me to Titus chapter 1, beginning in verse 5. Paul writes, This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Well, friends, here we've come really to the main purpose of the letter. And notice, Paul is all business. So, He dispenses with many of the normal words of thanksgiving and some of the personal encouragements that often mark the beginning of his letters. No, instead he jumps right into the issue at hand, right? Leadership in the church. And notice as Paul addresses leadership, he's not turning our attention to some latest piece in the Harvard Business Review. He's not pushing us toward a popular TED Talk. His understanding of leadership isn't primarily derived from the world. Rather, I think we could summarize his argument here like this. It's appoint godly leaders who live admirably and teach accurately. I think that's what Paul's pressing upon Titus in these Christian churches. They're to appoint godly leaders who live admirably and teach accurately. And that summary statement, I've attempted really just to trace the argument of the text. So in verse 5, what do we see? Well, that's the responsibility, the responsibility to appoint godly leaders. Paul says that's why he left Titus in Crete. And then in verses 6 to 8, we see sort of the requirement of these leaders, that they live admirably. We're given a list of both vices to be avoided and virtues that are to be cultivated. And then in verse 9, it turns really to their role, their duty, namely that they teach accurately both in how they give sound instruction in doctrine, and they also offer admonition to those who reject it. And so that will just serve as sort of our three-point outline. The responsibility, appoint godly leaders. That's verse role. The requirement, that they live admirably, verses 6 through 8. And then lastly, the role, that they teach accurately, verse 9. So first, let's think about the responsibility. Appoint godly leaders. Appoint godly leaders. Verse 5, again, this is why I left you in Crete, 
so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So it appears Paul was with Titus there in the island of Crete, and then at some point he had to move on. But he recognized, Paul did, that there was some unfinished business there in Crete that needed to be finished, some things left undone that needed to be done, namely appoint leaders in every town. And notice he calls those leaders what? He calls them elders. Now, elder in the New Testament can just refer to one who's older, but here Paul is clearly thinking about leadership in the church. So that title elder, for example, was used in the days of Jesus of Jewish synagogue leaders. But in Christian gatherings, it came to be used of that office given to preaching and to prayer. And it's synonymous, notice, with the term overseer. Because look down and notice in verse 7. What does Paul do? He jumps from the term elder in verse 5 and moves to the term overseer in verse 7. And he uses those two terms interchangeably. And if you want to see another place where this happens, you can go to Acts 20, where Paul will use that term elder and overseer and pastor, all three used interchangeably of the same office. And notice that word elders is what? It's in the plural as it almost always is in the New Testament. Paul doesn't say appoint an elder in each town, but appoint elders, plural. Friends, that's one concern that we ought to feel as a Southern Baptist church for many other of our Southern Baptist brethren, for churches in our own region, even nationwide, where there is what? There's usually a senior pastor and then maybe a deacon board or some committees And that lack of plurality deprives the church of leadership it needs, and it also deprives the the sole pastor of the help that he needs. And so while plural, though notice we're not given a specific number, indeed we're going to see Paul is going to focus not on the number, but really on their character. We're going to see that in just a few minutes. Now, it also seems there was, what, a church for each town. So, you know, we have First Baptist and Second Baptist or Cross or Fellowship, and they might just be blocks apart. But that wasn't the case here in the early days in the island of Crete. Now, it seemed there was a church for each town, and elders were to be appointed in every town. Notice, not over several towns. So there's no sense that we get here of some kind of episcopate that's ruling over these churches, like you might find in Anglicanism, for example, or Episcopalianism. There's not a single bishop that's ruling over an entire region, like you might find with Methodism or forms of, uh, rather, of Catholicism, too. There's not even a national presbytery, as you might find in Presbyterianism or in, in many Bible churches. Those wouldn't take shape, actually, those other forms until the 4th century when the church actually began to take on the structure of the, of the Roman civil hierarchy. But we won't go down that road. That's a lesson in church history for another day. I know that would be scintillating, but just hold on that one. Maybe some other time. At any rate, Paul commands Titus to stay and to what? To put into order what was evidently out of order. So I remember as a kid... Uh, I badly broke my arm in a car accident. And I'll spare you all the details. Yes, I'm married to a nurse, but I still get squeamish when I think about it. And I ended up 
with this badly broken arm. Not surprising, I end up in the hospital. And though I was in great pain, I didn't want them in any way touching and manipulating my arm in order to create more pain. It took a coordinated effort by the doctor, by the nursing staff, by my family, and yes, even a month's supply of my favorite candy in order to get them or let me, I should say, like get them to, to reset my arm. Right? They just had to convince me, listen, if we don't do this, you're not going to have normal use of your arm. Because when, I, when you, most of you put your arm out, what do you see? You see your palm. What did I see? I saw the whole back of my hand. Things were not as they should have been. And so they said, hey, listen, if you ever want to use your arm rightly, we've got to set it right. Eventually, I agreed. And I think that's kind of the image Paul uses here. That's actually what the word is getting at. These churches, what? They need to be reset. They need to be put right. But notice as important as elders are in the New Testament, Paul doesn't say here in Titus 1 that because these churches don't have elders, therefore they're not churches. So we want to be careful Elders, in this sense, aren't constitutive of a church. Are they critical for a healthy church? Absolutely. Elders are the first item here on Paul's to-do list. But while they're critical, Paul doesn't say they're essential. As in, a church can still be a church even if it doesn't have elders. And friends, that's, I may only make that note because it's important as we think about training up missionaries and sending out missionaries into unreached parts of the world, it may take on there in the mission field some time for a pastor missionary to be able to raise up other indigenous leaders and thus have a plurality of elders. And in that situation, the lack of elders, plural, doesn't mean that those who are gathering and who have come to faith aren't a church. They might be maybe irregular in their practice for a season, but so long as the word is rightly preached and the ordinances are rightly administered, right, they can be a true church even if they don't have a plurality of elders. But nonetheless, Paul knows they are important, and so he wants to see that Titus has them appointed. Now, some of us will hear that word a bit like I do, hear that word appoint, and maybe you think of like Gandalf the Grey or Harry Potter or some wizard with his wand and it's like poof, right? And they're just, there's an elder. Well, that's not really the sense I think we should take from, from the verse here. This Greek word for appoint, it just broadly means to cause something to happen, to see that one is authorized, to put something in place or someone in charge. And it doesn't really speak to the whole process. It just notes the end result. We're not told in Titus 1 exactly what steps Titus and the church take. But I do think it's rather unlikely that Titus would have intimate knowledge of scores of churches across an island as large as Crete. Meaning Titus likely didn't act alone. But he led the churches to select men for themselves very similarly to how they select the proto-deacons in Acts 6. In other words, I think it's less likely that Titus did this unilaterally and did it unilaterally for them, but rather he helped them do it for themselves. And notice how this pattern 
It just follows Paul's own missionary pattern, his, his own activity on even take his first missionary journey. Remember, he and Barnabas, what do they do? They go and they preach the gospel in the cities of Antioch and Iconium and, and Lystra and Derbe. And then we go on to read that sometime later, what do they do? They circle back. They return to Lystra and Iconium and Antioch. And what do they do? They appoint elders for them in each church. You've got Acts 14, 21, Acts 14, 23. Friends, that just right there is the Bible's missionary strategy. It's that plain and simple. How does Christianity spread in the New Testament? It's not through slick marketing campaigns. It's not through favorable legislation on Capitol Hill. It's not through even trendy church services, though I know we could be confused for that. Yeah, okay, thank you. I think that was Ben Evans laughing there. Thank you, Ben. You got my joke. All right. How does it spread? It's through the preaching of the gospel, Titus 1, 1 to 4. It's through then organizing Christians into churches. And then what? Gathering around and installing faithful elders, verses 5 to 9. That's how the gospel proceeds. That's what Paul does. That's what he calls Titus to do there in Crete. And let me just take a moment and say how indebted I am personally to the lead pastor who preceded me, a guy named Mike Lumpkin, who served here from roughly, I think, 2007 to 2014, because it was Mike whom God used specifically to lead this congregation into an elder-led and yet still congregationally governed church. And I know I and I trust we all ought to feel a debt of gratitude for the way in which he led us to do exactly what Paul is instructing Titus to lead the churches there in Crete to do, right? To point a plurality of shepherd elders. And I think it was this plurality that didn't just keep UBC afloat during some tough years, but it actually kept it chugging light right along, even without a lead pastor, and friends, we should be therefore praying for other churches in our area that they would know the same blessing. I think of our friend Ryan Johnson at First Baptist Elkins and how, how much he would be helped if he had other pastors around him, a plurality of elders that could help him. But friends, what kind of leaders should we be looking for? Now, if job postings are any indication, many churches are looking, as Liam Neeson would say, for a particular set of skills. All right, they want a gifted preacher, yeah, sure, but they also want someone what? Well, they want them with a dynamic personality. Someone, some of you are looking up. The ability to lead an organization, someone who's motivational and yet still pastoral, someone who can formulate strategy, set vision as an expert in administration. But friends, what does Paul say we should look for in godly leaders? Look at verses six through eight. He writes, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or grieved for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. Friends, that just brings us to, to our second point, the requirement. And what do we see right there? It's that they live admirably. That's the requirement of those who would be elders, the qualification, if you will. They must live admirably. Because while we tend to look at competency, 
Notice the Bible's going to focus on character. Where we tend to look at gifting, the Bible focuses upon godliness. In the Bible's estimation, better a godly elder with mediocre leadership gifts than a charismatic leader with glaring moral flaws. In verse 6, notice, looks first at his reputation in his family, verse 6, and the family, and then verse 7, 8, it's going to flip and think about his reputation more in the community at large. And notice both those expressions that begin verse 6 and then verse 7, they, they have that same header, that the elder is to be above reproach. They're to be above reproach, as in blameless in character and reputation. It seems that's the overarching concern, and everything else is there to summarize what it looks like. What does it mean to be above reproach? But Paul's saying these are the kind of individuals of whom you can levy accusations against them, but those accusations, they don't stick. Like when Jesus, for example, is being uh, charged with, with one who's in league with the devil, And yet no one bought it because everyone knew Jesus. They watched his life. They knew he wasn't in league with the devil. And this quality of being above reproach for elders, it's important because, well, for one, it stokes the congregation's trust in its leaders when they're above reproach. It also safeguards the church's witness in the broader community. It also provides a model, a practical model, a real-life model of of one who, who can be followed you know, Paul says we're to imitate him, and, and he says that to those who he's discipling. And similarly, right, we are to imitate, ideally, the lives of our elders. Elders should live such lives worthy of imitation. They're to, they're to model, elders are, what we desire this church to mature into. Now, their lives won't all look the same, different personalities, different sets of giftings. They won't all look the same but they should point clearly to the same Christ. Of that, there should be no doubt. Now, verse 6, notice they're first to be above reproach in the family. That's the first location. They are in the family. And now there are two things in verse 6 that I think demand a bit of our more careful attention. That expression, husband of one wife, and that the children are believers. I think those can, those can trip people up. So let's, let's think about them for a moment. Because that husband of one wife expression might be confusing. But it doesn't mean that elders have to be married any more than the mention of children, plural, means they have to have multiple kids. So I don't think Paul's prescribing what always must be the case, married with multiple kids. He's rather describing what must be Above reproach with what is normally the case, married with children. Now, second, husband of one wife can also sound like Paul is referring there to one's marital status, i.e., have they ever been divorced or maybe are they a widow? And some take it just that way. But I don't think the idiom, husband of one wife, is actually speaking to marital history, but instead it's speaking to marital fidelity. Marital integrity. Again, not marital history, I'm going to argue, but marital fidelity. As in, are they faithful in their present marriage? And I think one of the reasons I do that is because if you look, there's, a, there's the same expression used in 1 Timothy 5 with respect to widows 
whom the church is to support. We read there, they are to be widows, they're to be over 60 of age, there's some qualifications, and they're to be what? The wife of one husband. Exact same expression, just in reverse. Now, given the mortality rates of the time, given how marriage was that primary institution that provided women with protection and food and family, and given how the Bible doesn't just encourage but even celebrates remarriage to those who've lost a spouse, you can think of Ruth, for example, it would be strange to penalize a widow who had remarried or a, wid- or a woman who had been forsaken or abandoned when it's not clear she's done anything wrong. So again, I think this, ex- this idiom is referring not to marital history, but again, marital fidelity, which is why I think the NIV gets it right when it translates this verse, faithful to his wife. I think that's what Paul's getting at. But also notice Paul does use the expression husband of one wife, as in faithful to his wife. Paul doesn't say faithful to their spouse or faithful to her husband. I think he does that because Paul's assuming what he makes more explicit in 1 Timothy 2 and 3, namely that elders are qualified men. Not all men, but qualified men. Now, that's not to say women can't be gifted leaders. It's not to say women aren't excellent teachers. They absolutely are and can be. But it is to say in the church and in the home, there are ordered relationships of gender and authority. Now, that doesn't make one gender any more valuable than the other or more important than the other. Right? Men and women are, as we know, right from Genesis 1, equal in worth. But equal doesn't mean identical. Functionally, God intends them to live out their gendered relationships differently. Now, if you want to think more about that, I did a whole series on gender, I think back in 2017, and one whole sermon just on gender in the church. And you can, you can go back and look for that if you want to think about it some more. But I think that other expression that can throw us is later there in verse 6. His children are believers. For it sounds like Paul's saying that every child of an elder must be a Christian. And some, again, would read it that way. I don't think that's, though, the best way to read it. So the word believer, right there, pistis, can just mean faithful, right? Context in situations like this where word can mean two different things, how do you determine? Well, context always rules. It's key. And I think our verse offers a number of contextual clues that suggest that an elder's children, as in those who are still under the man's care, are to be faithful children, not necessarily believing children. Of course, we all want that. Of course we want our children to be believers. I just don't think that's exactly what Paul's getting at, at least not here. And why do I say that? Well, for one, there's no requirement back in 1 Timothy 3 that children of elders are to be believers. There, what does he say? The children of elders are to be what? They're to be submissive, as in obedient as in compliant, as in respectful of their parents and of their parents' authority. Which, second, would seem, in my mind, to be getting at the very same thing that he goes on here to say in verse 6. Namely, that these children are not to be open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. So right there, I think Paul's just describing what 1 Timothy 3 refers to as submissive, as in they're what? They're not insubordinate. 
his, his children are not recklessly wild. That just indicates there's, there's been a lack of care and attention given to the home. And then, of course, there are all the practical considerations. Right? At what point, if you think the children must be believers, at what point is that decision made? You know, if a young pastor is a child who's five and hasn't made a profession of faith, is, is that when it has to happen? Or is it 10? Or is it 15? At what point is the man disqualified? And would that not press parents and kids? I mean, think about kids. My dad's going to lose his job if I don't profess faith. That's going to encourage some false conversions, I would suggest. What if he has 10 children and the youngest doesn't come to faith? Is he then disqualified? What if a child walks away from the faith as a prodigal but then comes back and the man has to leave the ministry? Is he just immediately restored? I think there are all kinds of practical considerations that would make it unlikely to think Paul's referring here to every elder child being a believer. Because friends, where are we ever prom- where has anyone ever promised that in the Bible? I think the CSB gets it right when it says they're to be faithful children. As in respectful, submissive. The same thing he talks about in 1 Timothy 3. Faithful children who are not accused of wildness or rebellion. Okay, so we needed to address those things very specifically because they create most of the confusion in the text. But, but I don't want us to miss this. So just step back for a moment. Both lists, both here in Titus 1 and this similar list of sort of requirements or qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, I want you to notice both begin in exactly the same way. They begin with the family. If the church is God's family, Paul understands that how one manages their family is itself the great training ground and the proving ground for ministry. The assumption is that if one isn't faithful... In shepherding in that present context, if he can't be faithful in the home where there's a limited number of people, how is he going to be faithful in the church, which has so many more people and so many more lives at stake? So we say this often with missionaries. If they're not faithful to build relationships here and share the gospel here where we have shared language and shared culture, why should we assume when we send them over there without some of that shared language and culture, why should we just magically assume they're going to share the gospel then? Well, it's much the same way. If a guy's not shepherding in his home, why should we assume he'd shepherd in the church? So Paul's saying we shepherd God's family by shepherding our own first because how you handle your bride matters very much for how you will handle Christ's bride. That's what Paul understands. So if you this morning want to be an elder, if you aspire to the office, which Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.1 is a noble thing, it is a good thing. There can be ungodly ambition, but there can be very right aspiration for the office. Your first concern, if that's you, and I pray that's many of you, Your first concern shouldn't be, where will I get the next opportunity to, say, teach this, or maybe to lead that ministry? It's first to ask, if I have a family, how am I shepherding them? Do they feel safe? Do they feel cared for? Am I like that warm fire that they want to gather around? Or do they feel unprotected? Do they feel exposed? 
like living in a house in the dead of winter without heat where all the windows and doors are wide open and the wind is whipping through and they're huddling in the corners shivering. Is my life more like that? Is my family spiritually fed or do I leave them just to fend for themselves? Am I the kind of leader who just lays more burdens upon their back and thus make their life harder? Or am I bearing their burdens for them in an effort to help make their life easier? Because, friends, that's what good authority does. It helps bear the burdens of those around them. And that's where eldering begins, right there, just like that in the home. Why? Well, Paul says, verse 7, for, or because, an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. See, Paul understands the church is the household of God. You can look at 1 Timothy 3, 14 to 16. And the overseer is what? He's a steward, as in he's the manager of that house. Now that switch, I think, from elder in verse 5 to overseer here in verse 7, I think that's intentional, and I think it's getting at their function, which is elders are to function, which is they steward, they manage, they oversee. Now, some see elders as those who have a very limited scope. They just do some of the spiritual things. And, and everything else in the church that, that's meant to run is left to, again, maybe deacons or committees or something. But friend, in, in, in the days of Jesus and in the days that Paul's writing, a steward, a, a manager, was one who bore ownership and responsibility for the well-being of the entire house. And in this case, they're stewards of God's house. Which would mean they're stewards doctrinally, they're stewards spiritually, they're stewards financially, they're stewards administratively. Like over everything is the charge of the overseer. Which doesn't mean they do it all, but it does mean that they oversee and are responsible for it all. Which I think is one of the reasons why uh, elders as overseers, what, are the, what do we do as elders? We lead out in budgeting, we lead out in hiring. That doesn't mean the congregation has a role, but we see our job to function that way. And again, notice they're to be above reproach. So while their capabilities matter as overseers, they don't, again, matter as much as their character. And it's not just character in the family, but in verse 7 and verse 8, it moves on to character in the community. Now, he's going to go on in verses 7 and 8. Paul's going to offer five vices to be avoided, six virtues to be cultivated, and the temptation for some, or maybe for you, is to compare this list to 1 Timothy 3, and you, you'll notice they don't exactly line up. And maybe you'll conclude, like, was Paul confused? He can't keep his qualifications straight. Like, why is he being inconsistent? But I think that misses the point. Paul, when he's writing, doesn't have this, like, master 12-point checklist in mind that he's just trying to reproduce in 1 Timothy 3 or reproduce here in Titus 1 or in or Peter would in 1 Peter 5, for example. No, and don't think so much that Paul has in mind a checklist or a form. Paul, I think, as he's writing, he has a, a man in mind. He has a particular kind of man. And when he talks about him, when he describes him, some things he always thinks to mention, like they're to be faithful to their wife, they're to have faithful children. They need to exercise self-control to not be an excessive drinker, not to be greedy for money or gain. Right? Those things come up regularly. 
But then he might highlight different things depending upon context. So we're going to see in verse 9, Paul really double clicks on what does it mean to be able to teach? And he's going to spell that out in more detail. And notice as well, here in Titus 1, one of the prohibitions that's lacking is the fact that the man must not be a recent creed Likely, I think, because Paul's writing and he knows these churches in Crete are young. And unlike the church in Ephesus that's addressed uh, to, um, to Timothy, there in 1 Timothy, they already had elders. That church had been in play for a while. This, these congregations don't have elders. And, and those who have been Christians have maybe just been Christians a few years. And so recent, I mean, that of, of course, it's a bit relative. And in here, it would be less applicable. At any rate, what he highlights in these first of these, these vices, he says, okay, these things in particular ought not to characterize an elder. When you think of an elder, you shouldn't be thinking these things. Not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard or violent or greedy for gain. So arrogant as in stubborn and self-willed. So just because one is given oversight doesn't mean they're necessarily right. My wife reminds me sometimes of that in marriage. They'll make mistakes. She actually doesn't really do that. She's very gracious. Some things I just say not in my notes, all right? They'll make mistakes, elders will, which means they need to be humble. They need to be teachable. Because if they're not humble, they're not teachable. If they're arrogant and proud, when they crash, they take everybody with them. They're not to be quick-tempered, right? They're not to be men who just fly off the handle, so to speak. You know what it's like to observe road rage, you know, when you're out driving in a car? Like, that shouldn't be the elder, where he's easily provoked into a kind of road rage within the congregation, where everyone knows how to push his hot buttons. They're not to be a drunkard, which doesn't mean elders can't drink, but it does mean they shouldn't need to drink. And of course, they should never drink to excess. They're not to be violent. Now, that's certainly Paul's thinking about physically, but I think also verbally, So they shouldn't have pugnacious personalities. Overseers are to build up the church, not beat it down, Paul says. And they should never see their own service as a means to advancement or or to financial gain as those who are greedy for money or for power. So if you ever think about eldering someday, ask yourself, are you domineering Are you argumentative? Do you tend to be hot-headed, even explosive? Because such overseers crush church members. Instead, it's been said that elders would be what? They're to be gentle giants. So ask yourself, are you gentle? Or are you just always heavy-handed? Do you tend to be a peacemaker or are you regularly a fire starter? Do you listen well or do you regularly talk over others because you know they need to hear your opinion? Remember, this is not just also this this automark, those who aspire to the office of elder. But one of the things we see about these qualifications is there's nothing actually that remarkable about them in the sense they're meant to describe every Christian. So everything I'm saying should be true of anyone who would desire to be a faithful Christian as well. Now against these vices in verse 8, Paul lays out what six virtues to cultivate. Elders should be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. 
Now, you hear that word hospitality, and many think hospitality is a female thing. But Paul doesn't say it's a female thing. Paul says it's actually a Christian thing, and it's especially an overseer elder thing. The word literally means a lover of strangers. So don't have in your mind like Martha Stewart and something baking in the oven, but rather one whose home is wide open. It's a welcome respite from the storms of life. Hospitality in that sense is just a practical expression of love. It's not a form of entertainment. Paul also highlights how elders are to be self-controlled. Now, remember that word, because he's going to return to it repeatedly in Titus chapter 2. So elders, overseers, have to be those who know how to say no to the world, the flesh, and the devil regularly, and say regularly yes to God and yes to his word. And this self-control is meant to extend to all aspects of life. Nothing is off limits. Body, time, finances, internet, social media, Self-control in every dimension. And it's related to that word disciplined. So their lives aren't constantly, they're not to constantly seem out of control, but rather what? Disciplined and under control. Marked by upright and holy living. Because the life of an overseer ought to be worth following. So just a good question. Mothers in the room, are you seeking to raise up? Mothers, you can say this is fathers too, but but are you seeking to raise up sons like this that would have these qualities? Young women in the room, if you are not married and you desire to be married, are you seeking for these characteristics and qualities in the spouse you're pursuing? And if not, why not? As a church, are we raising up more men like this? Men who understand they're not only to live admirably, but lastly and thirdly note, their role, their duty. They must not just live admirably, they must teach accurately. Third, they must teach accurately. Verse 9, we read, the overseer must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So notice here Paul adds a distinctly theological dimension to what's really been more of a moral and ethical list of virtues. Overseers had to be those who hold firm to the trustworthy word where the the word, word, is used regularly of the gospel in the pastoral epistles. In other words, elders have to have what? They have to have a tight grip on the gospel. Overseers must understand the gospel, that it's not just for non-Christians, but the gospel is for Christians. That understand the gospel isn't just what saves us, it's what sanctifies us and sees us all the way home. They're to understand that we're not brought into the gospel by grace, but then kept in the gospel by self-effort and discipline. Right? It's grace all the way through. And that message they've received is the message they need to hold fast to and be sharing. Now, I understand if you're visiting this morning, this probably feels like a very churchy sermon. And yeah, it's about church leadership. There's no way around it. But if you've come and you're not a believer, what I would want you to see and what Paul would want you to see um, is that the shepherds that we need 
are the shepherds that are bent to shepherd after Jesus Christ. And they're to teach and live like him. Because we have not ourselves done that. We have all wandered. We have all strayed. We have all gone our own courses on our own way. And that sin, as the Bible calls it, living for ourselves and not living for God, is why Jesus came. The chief shepherd, as we read in John 10, the the great shepherd of the sheep, that he would lay his life down for the sheep, such that all those who see their sin and see their need to be cared for and to be shepherded by this glorious God can repent of their sins and look to him and, and trust in him and know they can have new life in him. So if you've come again and you're not and a believer in Jesus Christ, I pray that more even than a church with godly shepherds, you would know Christ as your great shepherd, who would lay his life down for you, that he might have you eternally. Now, the overseer, he must hold true to this word, he says, as taught. It's the word as taught. Because here's the thing, novelty, friends, controversy, that always sells. Peddling orthodoxy is not a great way to make a name for yourself, but it is the only way we make ourselves after Christ's name. We teach what we've been taught here from the Word. And they have to have this theological grip so that Paul says they need that so you can do two things, give instruction in sound doctrine and also Refute those who would contradict it. So give instruction and sound doctrine and give admonition. Basically, Paul is just spelling out in verse 9 what it means to be able to teach, as he talks about in 1 Timothy 3. And to give instruction in sound doctrine, what does that presume? It presumes, friends, elders know their doctrine. It presumes they are solid on their theological ABCs. Paul's saying, however gifted a man is, however successful, however beloved, however kind, if he's not theologically minded, he's not fit to be an elder. That's clear to Paul. It should be clear to us. You know, my first car uh, was a stick shift. I still wish they made more cars with stick shifts. I loved it. I loved moving through. It was not a fast car, but I could pretend, right? You'd rev up the engine and you move through the gears. There was only one problem. I could not get that car in reverse. You had to like pop it up, the shifter, and then jam it over, and then jam it up. And half the time, I just couldn't get it into reverse. I couldn't get it to engage. Well, Paul's saying a man who's got some gears but lacks that critical gear, lacks that ability to just get it into reverse, for example, and maybe refute sound teaching, Yeah, I shouldn't have been driving a car I can't get in reverse. I'm going to get myself in trouble. We shouldn't have elders who can't get into that gear theologically because they're going to lead the church into trouble. Which means at times, elders need to what? They need to refute false doctrine. False teaching comes up in nearly every New Testament letter, reminding us false teaching is a pastoral matter, not just an academic one. Overseers have to know how to draw lines and make careful biblical distinctions and reason biblically as they make them, which can be hard for us. And I think it can be especially hard for us in the South because we love to be polite. You know, my family's from Boston. They don't care about politeness. They they care about directness. D. 
DC, much the same way. Henry Kissinger, they would have loved that intro. You're like, what are you doing at any rate? Um, we can be polite, but sometimes we're polite about the wrong things. So when it comes to politics, for example, right, we're like the heresy police. We draw very clear boundaries, and you're either with this guy or with that guy, or this woman or that woman. There are, there are one boundary, you're on either side, there are just two people, good or bad. But when it comes to doctrine, we're like, oh, no, we need to be polite. We throw up our hands. We're like, oh, you know, charity, liberty is the word of the day. We're happy to call out names when it comes to politicians, but we don't call out names when it comes to preachers. Now, of course, we shouldn't be constantly throwing stones. But if there's an area in which elders need to be clear, it's doctrine that is faithful and doctrine that is not, and knowing the difference. And that's where elders, overseers have to excel. Well, I think Henry Kissinger is right. I think leadership is one of the great glaring needs of the day. Leadership that doesn't promote oneself, but seeks to promote and to protect those around them. Leadership that doesn't lay burdens on backs, but takes them off backs. Leadership that looks like Jesus, who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And such leadership is not just in desperate need out there, it's in desperate need right in here. You know, Alexander the Great once said, I'm not afraid of an army of lions that's led by a sheep. I'm afraid of an army of sheep that's led by a lion. Elders are to be such lions after the great lion, Christ himself, which is why we need godly leaders who live admirably and teach accurately, because leadership is more about action than about position. It's not about titles. It's not about flow charts and positions. It's about lives given in the service of others, for the greatest leaders don't simply tell you what to do. They come alongside, model, and show you how it's done. Friends, are we committed to raising up such leaders in our homes, in our churches? How even might you give yourself to that work, even this week? Let's pray.